of Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23, which can be found in your Pew Bibles on page 956. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The second reading is from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 10 to 17, which can be found on your pew Bibles um, on page 783. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel with will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your, vo and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. The word of the Lord.
Good morning. My name is Nick. I'm the assistant minister here at Knox Church. And this morning, we come to a troubling text as our scripture reading. It's a text that we likely feel more belongs in the Old Testament than in this only the second chapter of the New Testament. This is not a text that we associate with Christmas gladly, because at Christmas we seek to linger in joy, to relish love. We do not want to be confronted again by the sorrows of our world and the sorrows of our lives, the sorrow of lost and dying children, innocent who suffer at the hands of tyrants, people who are absent from us due to cruel circumstances, disease, and unknown reasons. These are the very things we have experienced throughout the tumult of the year behind us, and we know that we deserve the reprieve of Christmas. We do not want to think of the chilling realities of our world at this time of year that so often promises an escape from our world to drown out tears and sorrow with sleigh bells and with joyful carols. We are not so lucky, however, because right here, smack in the middle of the Christmas story, is a story of deep trouble and sorrow a story that picks at those old wounds of our lives and hinders our joy as we remember the sadness of many that surround us. Jesus is born, and many children have been slaughtered. What a terrible price to pay for a savior. What a cruel addition to the festivities of this season. Indeed, it seems that there is some trouble with Christmas a problem made apparent in this awful and heart-wrenching text from Matthew of the massacre of the innocents. The trouble with Christmas seems to be that there is already a king. There is already a king that sits on Israel's throne, Herod, and there's already a king that sits above Herod's throne, Caesar. There are already people in power who like their power. There are already people who value their comfort. And the news that the king is born, well, that's bad news for them. The hope of Christmas, that good news of great joy that will be for all people that the angels sing about, well, that news doesn't sound like very good news to Herod. Herod fears that this Christ child will take his throne will unseat him or his children, will cast them out or kill them in the ways that kings have always overthrown other kings. This is a story that Herod knows well. He's lived it himself. He made a claim to a throne, and he made compromises to maintain that throne. And he would not soon see that little piece of power that he still has removed from him least of all by a child. The trouble with Christmas is that it offers a solution to a problem that is not unanimously agreed upon, that Israel needs a king. Israel does need a king, a just king, a good king. But the trouble is Israel already has a king, and so the need for this new king is not accepted by all, and certainly not by the man who currently holds that position. So Herod has a choice before him. He can allow the proposition to be made that Israel needs a new king. Or he can end the conversation now while he still can. 
at this early stage, before too many people hear about it, before there's any real threat to his power. He has a chance to protect all that he's built. But because of the Magi, he doesn't know where the child is, except the name of the village and the time when he was born. With no other information to go on, he uses what he has. All children two years old and younger in and around Bethlehem must be killed. You see, the trouble with Christmas is that before hope had a chance to find its footing, despair sought to crush it. Before peace had a chance to take root in the land, the anger of the sword would strike. Before joy and love found home in the hearts of all, envy and hatred would lash out to prevent their success. So a loud voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is not the image that we have of Christmas. Mothers refusing to be consoled because why should they be consoled? Their children are no more. Nevertheless, it is an important image for us to remember because there are still mothers who weep this Christmas. We can think of the plethora of stories in the news, of families separated at the southern American border, of families in refugee camps scattered around the world for years on end without any hope of home again. Mothers still weep this Christmas. And there are some among us, even this morning, for whom this holiday has been marked with grief and hardship and strife before any semblance of joy. And so it is important for us to recall together that even if we or the people around us or people around the world don't feel that oft-referred-to Christmas season, this Christmas spirit this morning, that we too have a place in this story. And it's found in this text. Yes, there's still trouble with Christmas for us today. That same hope of Christmas rings out again, good news of great joy for all people. And still today, to some people in some places, for some realities of our current world, this still doesn't sound like very good news either. As it had been for Herod, the promise of a prince of peace sounds like bad news for the powers of trouble and war in our world. The suggestion that a king has been born remains a threat to the powerful who do not desire any change in the status quo. Our culture, right, it's, it's pretty committed to the almighty dollar. And Christmas, one would think, ought to be bad news for the love of money. Jesus' kingdom, it breaks down dividing walls of class. It invites you to come and buy milk without money and without price. And yet somehow Christmas has become the most commercial season of the year. It's an opportunity for the biggest profits. It's a time when people feel the most stressed about money and their bank accounts. And can they make it? Can there be Christmas without enough money? The very thing that we should be freed from because of Jesus' coming, because of Jesus' kingdom becomes the very thing we're worried the most about. You see, the Herods, which command our devotion, 
which command our affection. These Herods that are still alive and well in our world will not go away quietly or quickly. They will struggle to the last. They will go even so far as to twist the reasons for our joy into reasons for our sorrow. That the reason for our freedom from captivity could become the very thing that might keep us captive itself. A child has been born. So many children die. A season of great joy for all people. A season of record profits and record debts that cause lasting harm and sorrow. The news that was once for our joy has become the very instrument of our pain. But the underlying truth remains that Christmas itself, the story of our God coming to us in Jesus, is not troubling news for us at all. Rather, it should be troubling news for all that is wrong with this world. Christmas is troubling news for greed, which insists that we must consume more. And it's troubling news for political affiliations that assert that their goals must be our highest goals. Christmas is troubling for our careers that call for our exclusive loyalty and for our families that sometimes demand more of us than we can possibly offer. Christmas is troubling news for all these things because it begins to tell a different story entirely. Christmas is bad news for every kind of division that rules our day. As a peasant family from, Beth, from Nazareth returns to Bethlehem, and is given David's heir. As a child of Israel flees to Egypt and finds safety where there had never been safety before. As the most unexpected things become true in this Christmas story, they spell trouble for everything as it was then and everything as it is now. And we should not be taken by surprise that such an upset is not accepted willingly that everybody and everything that is content with the way things are now would be discontented and worse, willing to do even the unthinkable for the sake of ensuring that this good news of great joy, that it doesn't make it nearly as far as those angels were talking about. This can't make it at the door. You see, there is the incredible promise of Christmas, the promise waited for since the days of Isaiah that says, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Mighty Counselor, a Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there would be no end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and judgment from that time and forevermore. That's the promise of Christmas. That's the thing that people had been waiting for. That's the good news that's meant to inspire great joy. Peace at last, a kingdom that won't end, justice as suddenly the way of the world. That's what we long for even today. And even people who don't know this promise, who've never heard this news before, this is the world they've been dreaming of. The story of Herod and the promise of Isaiah, those two things together highlight for me that it is the promise of Christmas 
that is also the trouble of Christmas. It's the very promise that things will change, right? It's the promise that things will change that instigates the threat to Herod's reign. And it's the belief in that promise, the realization that this threat is real that inspires the response it receives. If that promise in Isaiah didn't matter, if Jesus being born didn't matter, if it had no chance to affect the kind of change that Isaiah is talking about, I don't think Herod would have bothered, right? It doesn't matter if this isn't to be believed in some sense. Jesus is no threat if this promise is never coming true. But Herod does bother. He does because there is hope. And as far as he's concerned, that hope requires a terrible and swift response. Herod lashes out in violence with all the might of his office against a small threat against a child. But it's a child who Herod knows will undo him. And as he reacts in this way, Herod seals his fate. He does not succeed in killing Jesus. The Holy Family escaped to Egypt, now refugees themselves. And the gospel writer records a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There's still tragedy. There's still pain. But that ember of hope is secured. Herod will be undone. Evil may not go quietly, but it will certainly go. That verse from Jeremiah that Matthew quotes, it has another part that we heard this morning, another part that points us towards hope. It continues by saying, this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants. Your children will return to their own land. What Jeremiah writes about the exile in Babylon, Matthew takes and he uses it to point us towards a greater truth. Uses it to comfort women weeping for their children as he points towards resurrection. These infants killed far too soon will not ultimately be victims of Herod's rage. They will return, even from the land of the enemy, even from death itself. The Christian church has understood this promise of Christmas so fully that historically there's actually been a feast day connected to this text from Matthew. Christians feasted and celebrated about this massacre of the innocents, They called it the Feast of Holy Innocence, and it's celebrated on December 28th, the third day of Christmas, yesterday. On that day, the church remembers the death of these first martyrs of our faith, the first people who paid the price for the hope that would change the world. And as we remember them, we remember the hope that holds us with them, right? That connects us to them, that holds us fast. We remember the hope that Herod and those like him never win, won't win the day, that this story is bigger than Herod. The promise of Christmas is that the increase of our God's government and peace will have no end, that his kingdom is justice, that not even the tantrums of a vicious tyrant will have the last word, 
Let not even the kingdom of darkness itself can cause lasting sorrow or grief because all that there, all that there will be in God's kingdom is good news and great joy and all people. This trouble, deep and terrible as it is, will be undone because our God came to us, made his dwelling among us, and assured us that all things would be set right again. Christmas is the beginning of that story through which God accomplishes that promise, that even the most tragic pieces of life cannot erase this story because the smallest flicker of hope escaped the torrent of evil that desired its end. And in that small hope rests the hope of every mother who cries for her children. In that small Christmas hope rests the hope of every child who has ever gone to bed afraid or alone or hungry. In that tiny, lingering hope of Christmas remains the hope of every person who has ever known trouble or sorrow or pain. The promise of Christmas holds that Jesus is a better king than anything that commands our attention and devotion right now. That his kingdom is a better kingdom than even the ones that we've grown accustomed to and grown comfortable with. That Jesus, his kingdom is better than the love of money, which buries deep within our hearts doubts and fears. And Jesus offers us hope and faith instead. Jesus is better than relationships which inspire our deep anxiety to belong. And in its place, Jesus offers to us peace. That this is better than our careers which promise us fulfillment with accomplishment but too often come up short. And Jesus offers joy in our rest. That this is better than every political division which causes us to pick teams and choose sides and hate the other because are they really that obtuse and dense? Jesus names love as the greatest commandment. As Jesus' kingdom increases in our lives and in the world, so too will these marks of his kingdom, of hope, peace, joy, and love. But friends, they will not come uncontested the Herods of our lives and of our world will continue to push back, continue to react against, continue to devise any scheme they can manage to subvert and diminish this threat to their power. But no amount of evil can subdue this great hope of Christmas, the tremendous beginning to the story of God's love, casting out all darkness, distress, and discomfort. How even one day all that caused us grief and worry will come to nothing. And we will enjoy the full promise of Christmas where the Prince of Peace will sustain us with justice. Good news of great joy for all people. In our lives and by our prayers, may God's kingdom come. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, in the midst of this tremendous story of joy is a heartbreak that is difficult for many of us to imagine. But we do know sorrow, 
and we do no pain. And we do no Herods that devise all kinds of evil to maintain their power, to hold on to their comfort. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to not only survive the Herods of our lives, but to thrive. To not be dismayed at the trouble we face, but to see in that trouble the truth of your promise that your kingdom is coming and with it is justice for all. We pray that you would grow in us your hope, your peace, your joy, your love, that we would bear this hope of Christmas to all people who we meet, to all places where we go, to all the situations of our world and our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen.